to share some news with you. We got a text this morning that Kathy is coming. So um, as you all can know that, please continue to pray for for them, each one of them. Um, we also set up a meal. Oh, thank you. Um, we also set up a meal train, and I think there's an email out if you'd like to um, get on that to provide some meals for uh, the Hapgoods. Um, please check your emails. Uh, if you don't have that email for some reason, please go talk to Brad, um, and he can always add you to that list. Okay. Um, I want to say one thing, too. I'm just really thankful for how financially generous this church is. Um, it is a wonderful thing um, that you guys give. Um, I don't see any of that. I recuse myself from it, but when I see the big number, I know, and I just want to thank each and every one of you who give. Um, it's a big deal, so thank you so much. We're going to do a scripture reading this morning. It's going to be from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. That's God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for Your Word to us. Let's pray that as a church You would help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, the good news of of the Gospel, that Jesus is King, that He died for our sins, that He has risen from the dead, reigning and ruling from heaven. I just ask that we would believe that, that each and every one here would believe that, that if anybody doesn't know that, that today would be the day that they would trust Christ and give allegiance to the King. And so we just ask your blessing on the rest of this time, blessing on the kids as they go, blessing on Alan as he shares. Um, We just ask that you would be with the Hapgoods right now, each and every one of them, that they would lean into you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Kids, you're dismissed. So the Christian message is a story. It's not a religion of principles to get you a better life. It's not a way to make you a better person. It's not a mystery cult like they had in ancient times of secret knowledge by those that have super spiritual insights that only special people can receive. It's a story. It's a story that's rooted in real history. And so the Bible itself unfolds as a narrative from beginning to end. And we must be careful not to treat it as a school textbook where we pull out different facts and kind of copy and paste just the ones that make sense into our lives. We must be careful not to chop it up to grab just our favorite verses, our John 3.16s, or our cute Instagram photos and decor at Hobby Lobby 
But the idea of the New Testament and the Old Testament is that it's a story. And so, anyone who would try to chop it up and act as if we're just New Testament Christians does not know the story of Old and New Testaments. So, if we just keep Matthew, we just keep Mark, we kind of ignore Genesis, we ignore Leviticus, we will miss the point. So, it would be like jumping into a movie halfway through. Maybe you've done that, or you've fallen asleep, and then you wake up and you've missed some of the important things that have happened. It will make no sense. Or reading the end of a book. Some people actually do that. We will not speak of who. But sometimes when books are read or movie endings are given, man, how can people do that? But that's not the way we believe. That's not the kind of story we are engaged in as Christians. You will miss the whole plot if you forget that the Christian message is a story. I love what Dr. Mike Heiser said. He actually recently passed away. And this is the way that uh, he... He put this, thought it was a helpful way to look at the scriptures. He said, I often tell Christians that it's a good idea to read the Bible as though it were fiction. Just kind of let that sit on you for a second. I often tell Christians that it's a good idea to read the Bible as though it were fiction. When, When we read fiction, our minds are tuned to the fact that the writers are intentionally trying to steer us to make us think certain thoughts. Storytelling is not only more interesting than textbooks reading, it's more compelling. And in a YouTube video, he talks about that a little bit more and he unpacks it. He talks about how when you read, let's say you read a mystery novel, you think about where the gun is placed or something that you're missing. Like as you're reading, every sentence, every word means something and it connects to the whole plot, to the whole story, just like a movie and like a book. So we probably would benefit from reading the Scriptures more like kids listening to their favorite book than stressed out college students getting ready to prepare for an exam. Of course, we treat the Bible with seriousness, but sometimes we can just treat it like this textbook, like we're examining each and every word and forgetting the big picture of the story that God is telling us. And so I want us to recapture the sense of story in the life of Jesus. And I want to do that through the book of Mark as we lead up to Easter. So we're kind of taking a break from 1 Corinthians, though I did read it this morning. And the reason why I read it this morning is because I wanted us to really focus on that phrase, according to the Scriptures. When Paul describes the good news of the Gospel... He says it twice. According to the scriptures, he was buried. According to the scriptures, he raised from the dead. That this whole, that Jesus is the fulfillment of a story. And we need to remember that. I mean, I've heard sermons. I can remember being in one place on an Easter Sunday and just hearing the kind of the classic Easter's a new beginning sermon, like derooted from the Old Testament and kind of this anti-religion, almost disconnected from all scripture that Jesus kind of came out of nowhere here to give you a new beginning and a new spiritual way of life. That's not the case. The good news of the gospel is fully rooted in all the story that came before. And we really need to hold that, to believe it. Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the grave and that that did not come out of nowhere. It was the culmination of a plot, the climax of a story that took place over thousands of years. It even had a twist. It had a surprise ending. The Messiah died. They weren't expecting that. That was the sudden twist in the story. That's not what Messiahs are expected to do. But that's what King Jesus did. And like all good stories, there is conflict. There is conflict all over the pages of the Bible. There are adversarial authorities, a collision of kingdoms. Something must be conquered in the biblical storyline. There are alien powers that must be destroyed. Capital P, like I've said before, powers. In God's world, 
God created the world good, but now in God's world there are twisted powers that rule and reign in the world. And there are three. Satan, sin, and death. And all three are powerful, enslaving powers. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of try to put this story together. I quote from Genesis a lot, and I do that intentionally, because you must go back to the beginning to understand the story. So I'm going to do some A's today. We have the arrival of adversarial authorities. The arrival of adversarial authorities. We see all three of these in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, we got a serpent in the garden. That introduces a whole different set of Questions. Where did the serpent come from? How did he get there? When did the fall of angels happen? When did the fall of Satan happen? So, really, this isn't just the arrival of Satan, but in our story, from the beginning of where the Bible wants us to focus on, it doesn't get into all those details, though different scriptures hint at that, but we know that there is a serpent, the devil. And so he is in the garden. And he tempts Eve, and he starts with lying to her. And then we have sin, Genesis 3, 2-7. She is tempted, and she sins. Adam, with her, sins. And the woman said to the serpent, this is verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is holding something back from you, Eve. He's holding something back from you. He's not telling you the full truth. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So adversarial authority, Satan in the garden saying what his words got the real authority. It's not so much God's word. God's not giving you everything that you need. And then they fall into temptation. They sin and a new great power is introduced into the world. And then we have death. Genesis three nineteen. When God speaks to Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Verse 23 to 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the men and women are sent out of the garden. Death has entered the world. They don't have access to the tree of life. And they are enslaved to the fear of death that is coming. And so our world tells us a story, meaning the world that we live in, that many regard this as fiction. That these powers aren't real. Satan is fake. That's old. We have science that sin is not that big of a deal. It's mainly neurosis, something that just therapy will help. And therapy can help. But we have a therapeutic world in which sin isn't rebellion against God. It's just a problem. Maybe it's a mental illness, something like that. Or sin is no big deal. There are no sins. And so we take the supernatural power out of these things. 
Satan, a fiction, an illusion. Sin, not that big a deal. Death, we admit, but death, just another process of, of evolutionary theory, moving toward nothing and just the explosion of planets and the sun doing whatever it's going to do. And we, we die, but we ignore it. We numb it out. We avoid it. We enjoy marketing and TV. And so, we believe that these aren't that big of a deal. That these authorities out there aren't really that strong. But what we find is they are. And that we cannot defeat them on our own. And the biblical storyline is different. The biblical storyline is, no, these are capital P powers. You are helpless. In a fallen condition apart from Jesus Christ, every person who is ever born is enslaved, tyrannized to these powers, utterly helpless before them, cannot be overthrown on their own. And the world lies under the illusion that we are free, but we are actually tyrannized by them. Ephesians 2, 1-3, the picture that Paul paints of the world, of the condition of human beings in this world. Ephesians 2, 1-3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice that word dead, death, dead, in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we have a stark picture of the way the Bible views these powers. They're so strong that you were dead in your sin. An impossible, an impossibility to get out of. But not only that, that people that don't know Christ, that are following the course of the world, they're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of that satanic power is at work in the sons of disobedience. Strong words. That people are living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So they are ruled by sin. It is reigning within them, enraptured with it, captured by it, captivated. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That if you don't know Christ, that you are actually blinded by satanic power. You cannot see it. And I was thinking, we have historical examples of those who think they are advocating for freedom and liberty, but they are not. And at times through history, we can start to see through the lies. And believe it, we are living in lies right now in the way that our culture thinks about certain things, about what it means to be a human being. But what I found that was interesting, I was, I've been listening to The Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson, which is about the Civil War. And I was thinking we can look back on some of this and kind of act as if we are above that kind of view of liberty. But I was struck by the way in which the South was enslaved to a lie. Like in literal actuality. They were enslaving and they were enslaved to a lie. Listen to this. This is um, James McPherson. He's a historian writing. What were these rights and liberties for which Confederates contended? The right to own slaves. The liberty to take this property into the territories. Freedom from the coercive powers of a centralized government. Black Republican rule in Washington threatened Republican freedoms as the South understood them. The ideology for which the fathers had fought in 1776 posited an eternal struggle between liberty and power. Because the Union, after March 4th, 1861, would no longer be controlled by Southerners, the South could protect its liberty from the assaults of hostile power only by going out of the Union. On the 4th of March, 1861, declared a Georgia secessionist, we are either slaves in the Union or freemen out of it. 
The question, agreed Jefferson Davis and a fellow Mississippian, was, will you be slaves or will you be independent? Will you consent to be robbed of your property or will you strike bravely for liberty, property, honor, and life? Submission to black Republicans would mean the loss of liberty, property, home, country, everything that makes life worth having, proclaimed a South Carolinan. I'm engaged in the glorious cause of liberty and justice wrote a Confederate soldier, fighting for the rights of man, fighting for all that we of the South hold dear. So utterly convinced that you are fighting for liberty and you are enslaving human beings as property. So we, not just the South, but we, apart from Christ, can be enslaved to lies and be convinced that our life and our way of life and our self is free and full of liberty. But one of the things that Jesus came to do was to overthrow lies and to overthrow false authorities, enslaving powers in these three. Sin, Satan, and death. So, in Mark, the story, back to narrative, Mark 1, what does it say? This was probably the first gospel. It's not the first gospel in the order of the canon of the New Testament, but it was probably the first gospel written. It's the small one. And he also starts from the beginning. Chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. So, look at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel. But not beginning as if nothing went before. The beginning as it is written. There's the word again. According to the Scriptures, as it is written, you find it all over the Gospels of Jesus that Jesus' life is telling a story and it's a fulfillment of every single thing that went before. It did not come out of nowhere. So the good news is a fulfillment of what happened before. And one thing we find very quickly is that the way that Jesus talks is He talks about a kingdom. He talks about a new rule, a new reign. But before that, look down a little bit at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is speaking of Jesus. So, Mark starts with, hey, this is the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, as it's written. Everything has gone before, and this is who he is. We start with John. There were prophecies about John the Baptist. He's the first. He's the forerunner. And then we have Jesus getting baptized in The Jordan, we have the announcement of the voice that comes from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so one of the first things we see about Jesus, one, he was baptized, and two, the Spirit sends him somewhere. The Spirit immediately, and that's a favorite word of John, he says it, or excuse me, of Mark, he says it over and over and over again. Immediately, I just read this to the kids and I was continually struck. I say immediately a lot. I mean, it's a ton of times. So the emphasis here is that the Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness and drove him, almost has like a violent connotation. In fact, in Genesis, I'm not sure if this is the same kind of, um, like if in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, sometimes you have the same words used. I don't know if it was, but the, the driving out of, of Eden, kind of get out of here. So you have the sense in which the Spirit, the first thing, oftentimes in the Gospels, sends him into the wilderness. So what does that do when you read a story? That should click. Oh, wilderness, that's interesting. Why is he in the wilderness? Well, what happened in the Old Testament? Where were the people of Israel? They were in a wilderness. What were they doing there? They were being tempted. They were falling into temptation. They failed. They wandered for 40 years. Oh, surprise, there's another number that comes up. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is one of those interesting things like, what, Mark, what are you talking about wild animals? Why do you stick these things in here? Well, there's a few different ideas. Um, one of them, 
could be wild, wild animals because it's kind of a symbol of like in the new creation you have lion and lambs laying down together and everybody's happy. But the other one, which I tend toward, is that this is probably showing you have three, a few different things going on here. You have the Spirit, you have Jesus, and you have angels. Then you have Satan, wilderness, and wild animals, which would often roam in the wilderness. And so you have kind of two different spheres, two different types of power. And you have Satan, or excuse me, you have Jesus going into the wilderness for conflict. And that's what happens when the kingdom comes, a conflict of authorities. What's interesting about this is that in Psalm 91, Psalm 91 was actually used in a period of time like this for things like exorcisms. So during the second temple period, which is kind of this time that Jesus would have come, meaning Jesus of Nazareth came into the world, Psalm 91 was used for exorcisms. And in Psalm 91, 11 to 13, you read this. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and serpent you will trample underfoot. You have a few things in here. You have angels. You have serpent, which in the King James Version is dragon. You have lion. What's that? Those are wild animals. And what's happening here? Angels are helping. They will bear you up. You're going to tread on lions and adders and serpent, dragon. So Jesus is going into the wilderness and this is one way in which he conquers Satan. One way in which the conflict happens. And actually, Satan quotes Psalm 91 at Jesus. Remember, Satan knows the Bible. He knows it well. But Jesus does not fall for his tricks. The angels minister to him. Jesus, of course, is upheld. Yes, he's God, but he is fully man. He endures the temptation. So when the conflict comes, he succeeds. If we go on in Mark, back to Mark chapter 1. We're going to kind of be flipping around a lot today. What happens after that? After he's driven into the wilderness, we see John arrested. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the time is fulfilled. Again, there's a timeline here. It's a story. He's saying, hey, I'm, the time is now. The kingdom of God has come. Here I am. I'm the king. You need to repent. You need to believe in the good news of the gospel and that there is a kingdom coming. There, the rule and reign of God is breaking in and it is now being fulfilled. And where's the rule and reign of God breaking in at? A place where there's a bunch of other rule happening. What's happening? Rome. The Roman Empire. The Greco-Roman Empire is ruling and reigning. So you have that happening among Gentiles. That's obvious. That's all that they know. Again, we're trying to get our minds out of America right now. We're trying to... The first century is happening. What's going on right then? There's a ruling power. There's an empire of Rome. What's also going on? You have the religious, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of them. Also, you have the people of God oppressed by a literal power and they are awaiting a Messiah. They are awaiting a king to come and help them to get rid of this authority. And this guy comes along and he says, the time is fulfilled, the time is now. Here, here I am. Repent and believe in the gospel. The story is being fulfilled among you. And so he's saying to them, hey, believe a new story. Reorient your lives around me. Turn from the other authorities. But he does it in a different way. He does it in a way that they weren't expecting. Again, the Jewish people of the day would have been expecting the Messiah to come and kick out the other rulers. But he is talking about three rulers that are even more important than the present ruler. Sin, Satan, and death. 
And then he does that with the signs of the kingdom, which is what's going to start happening. And so, wait a second, how is the presence of the kingdom here? I don't, I don't see. You're not ruling and reigning. Rome's not gone. How is the kingdom here? Well, he goes on to show them in his life. It's going to start overthrowing other authorities, bigger ones. So, chapter 2, verse 1. We see some of what happens here. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amazed. So verse 4. I was struck by that. His friends bring in the paralytic. What does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. And I was thinking, what are they thinking right then? Wait, what are you, why are you bringing sin up? Why are you bringing sin up right now? We're here for healing. We're not here for forgiveness. We're here to deal with this paralyzed friend. And I was thinking that a greater helplessness than human frailty is human sin. A greater helplessness than human frailty is human sin. This man is not only paralyzed in body, he's paralyzed in sin. He's dead in his transgressions of sin, as Paul would say. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And so we have to view sin, like, if, like when we see paralysis, when we see the effects of the condition of human death and the process into it, times we can just go, this is impossible. What can be done? And God is saying, that's the way that sin is. Sin has that kind of effect. It is a ruling power in the life of non-believers. It has tyranny over you. It is impossible to get out of. Calvin and Hobbes. You guys like Calvin and Hobbes? Like, wow, it's quite the transition right here. Here we go. This is really good. Calvin. So they're skiing. They, they like to do that. There's a lot of snow and they're on a sled and they're riding. Calvin. I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes, you're worried you haven't been good? Calvin, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. But wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. Calvin, see, that's what worries me. So sometimes we can treat sin that way. We think sin is the big stuff. That's not the biblical view of sin. And it's not even just choices that you make that are bad. We say that a lot nowadays. Hey, we've got to make better choices. Did you make a good choice? Did you make a good, you know, that's... And again, you can say that. We say that sometimes. But if you take that to its extreme, it's a false view of the human being. Humans are sinners by nature, enslaved to a power that they cannot get out of. It's capital S, it's S-I-N. It's sin, sinners before you make bad choices. It's captivity to it. It's enslaving. And Calvin and Hobbes kind of realize that. Well, wait, 
What's the definition? What's the standard? What are we talking about here? How do I get presents? How do I get the good stuff? Ooh, that worries me. Maybe it's more than just the big things. Maybe it's more than just the absence of bad. Maybe there's something else that I need. Maybe this is a bigger deal. And so Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Which also shows there's a bigger authority in the room. It's not just the authority of sin. It's not just the authority of, of, of sickness, paralysis. That Jesus is there. The King is there. And Jesus just kind of throws it out there. Son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders are like, whoa, uh, no. That's, you, you can't. You just can't be go around saying that kind of stuff. Like, who, who, were, who, were, who are you appealing to? What gives you the authority to say your sins are forgiven? That's blasphemy. Another indication and another sign that one, that Jesus is God. You don't just need John 1. When people come and knock on your door, try to say Jesus isn't God. Jesus is God. You can use verses like this. It's one of the reasons why I was crucified. He's a blasphemer. One of the ways he blasphemes is he acts like he is. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus takes a divine authority there and the religious leaders aren't happy. We will continue to see that as we lead up to Easter. Which that's what we're doing. We're going to talk about Jesus a lot until Easter. We're not going to be in 1 Corinthians until afterward. But so Jesus proves his kingly authority over sin with a demonstration of authority over sickness. So anybody can also just walk in a room and say that. You could just be like, oh, hey, hey, your sins are forgiven. Now, we'd be that, that dude's crazy. I need some medication. That's what we would think. Um, but they're like, no, that's blasphemy. And he's like, oh, I'm going to prove it now. You want to see a sign of the kingdom? You want to see a sign of the rule and reign of God and what's happening right now in your midst? Healed. Boom. Done. So he heals him. The king has arrived. The kingdom is breaking in. He's demonstrated his authority over sickness and his authority over sin in that he forgives it. So next one, we're going to go over to Mark 5. Jesus' authority over Satan. Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and I never know how to say that, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
So Jesus, in this territory, this is probably more Gentile territory, gets out of the boat, meets the man with the unclean spirit that lives among the tombs. So again, it's kind of got the horror movie feel. Tombs, dark, dude's cutting himself, completely in torment, crying out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And again, the demons know who he is. The demons know there's a new authority here. But this guy can't do anything. He's tormented. He's enslaved. Again, this is not, nothing is going to fix this. He's enslaved by demonic power. Helpless before it. No one, you see that, no one can bind him anymore, not even with chains. They're just like, forget about this guy. He breaks the shackles. No one has the strength to subdue him. He can't help himself. Other people cannot help him. Humanity cannot help the situation at all. Neither would modern medicine help this particular kind of situation. It's humanly impossible. So he's crying out, going on day after day. And one thing that was interesting is they talked about how there was a lot of magical incantations and things back then. You would actually have exorcisms and exorcists going around doing different things. And this was interesting to me. One commentator said this, In ancient magic, higher spirits would be invoked to drive out lower spirits. And the demons here appeal to the only one higher than Jesus to keep Jesus from driving them out. I adjure you by God. This language invokes a curse on Jesus if he does not comply. Phrases like, I adjure you and I know you, which happens in Mark 1.23, there's another exorcism earlier, appear in ancient magical exorcism texts as self-protective invocations to bind the spiritual opponent. The attempt at magical self-protection proves powerless against Jesus. So there's a few things going on here. The demon itself may be trying to curse him while also recognizing the authority that is there. And what does Jesus do? He sends them out. He takes the power. He has the authority. And again, what does he do? He does not appeal to something higher than himself. He just says, come out. He says it in a word and it's done. He's the authority. He's the power. He's stronger than this other torment that is happening. And that scares people. Like, people would be scared. Like, we'd be scared if that was happening right now. And the people are kind of scared of Jesus. They're like, dude, get out of here. Go go somewhere else. And Jesus actually tells the guy, hey, no, nope, you're going to stay here. The guy wants to come with him. Wouldn't you? <laughs> like, no, the guy who just freed me is leaving. I don't really want to go back to the old stuff I was just doing. But he goes back and he tells everybody about what God had done for him and the great mercy that God had on him. And so again, Jesus is king. He overthrows the power of demons, even a legion of them. He defeats Satan. Jesus' authority over death comes in the next section. Verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garments. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? 
And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithikumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I just love the way these narratives are written. They're, they're written like they're true. All these little details. This guy's coming in. They're going out. He just raises from some of the dead. Hey, get her some food. <laughs> like this, this is amazing. This is what happened. And sometimes by hearing the story and reading the lot, we just kind of, this is what happened. Here's the story. Jesus did this. We just need to let that land on us. This is true. It's kind of like you're saying, hey, what did I do yesterday? Well, I did this, that, and the other thing and went to Eureka and went to Target and blah, 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 blah. Can I go, this, you just explained, this, this, this happened. That's amazing. And so, in this section, we see Jesus' power over death. The one thing we can't avoid, we can act as if sin doesn't exist, we can act as if Satan doesn't exist, but death does. We all know it. We all feel it. We try to numb it, we try to ignore it, but sometimes it's right in front of our face. And so here, Jesus is going along and you also have to wonder, Jesus, why are you stopping? Why aren't you running? There's that. Why'd you stop for this woman right now? My daughter is dead. Move your... to the house. Sometimes Jesus does things differently than we do. But he has a reason. He's going to heal another woman. He's going to heal a woman that's had an issue forever, that doctors cannot solve, that again, all that humans are offering cannot help her. And he heals her. He stops for her. An unclean woman, an outcast, and she reaches out and touches him, which of course would mean that now he is unclean. But he's not. He is clean. He's capital C clean. And he makes people clean. And she's healed. And then they get the news, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble Jesus any don't, don't trouble the teacher any longer. Is he a teacher? Yeah, but he's a whole lot more than a teacher. They don't really realize that yet. They're crying, weeping, wailing, grief at death. He says, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Quoting Aramaic the language of that time. One commentator put this this way. The basic meaning of talita is lamb, but the term was used for children. The words might therefore appropriately be translated into English, get up, kid. And I would even think, sometimes we say kid, again, I'm not a, Hebrew, I'm not a Greek scholar, Aramaic, so I don't really know. But just as I read this, I go, kid still sounds kind of, you know what I mean? Like, hey, kid, stop doing that. Do you, you ever hear that? I kind of think of it more like, get up, kiddo. Hey, lamb. Hey, little lamb. Get up. Then there's that awesome picture in the Jesus Storybook Bible of how like he reaches down into death, like pulls her right back up. Just get up, kid. I'll deal with this. Death. Alive. Hmm. <clears throat> And then he gives her something to eat. Get something to eat. 
That's good news. Jesus defeats death. The signs of the kingdom right in front of them. Everything is going to be new. The kingdom is breaking in. There's a new creation coming. I defeat death. See? Get up, kiddo. And so, the conflict of the kingdoms. At the end of the story, you have the second advent of Jesus. Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation 19 and 20. And things get intense. So this first thing we see, Jesus' power, all this authority. And then, how does He die? He dies in weakness. We've been reading about that in Corinthians. The, the message of the cross, foolishness, weakness. The Messiah is crucified and killed. What, what about the hopes of Israel? What about the Davidic kingdom? What, what in the world is going on here? Because He came to defeat bigger powers. And then He rose again. We're going to talk about that a lot at Easter. He's alive. And then we have the, the, we get the whole story in Revelation and things get a little crazy. And in Revelation 19, we see this kind of picture of Jesus. And it's intense. It's almost too intense, I think, for our little modern ears. And this is what he describes Jesus as. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. This is 19 verse 11 in Revelation. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So Jesus' second coming is a little different picture. The two were thrown alive. They got to throw that in there? Not just thrown into the lake of fire, thrown alive into the lake of, lake of fire. Like when Jesus deals with the big three, Satan, sin, and death, just wipes them out. Throws them into the lake of fire. We see that in verse 20. The devil, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Down in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the final overthrow. The cross and the resurrection. All that Jesus is doing early in His ministry is all signs. The cross and the resurrection is the good news that it's conquered, and then we have the kingdom yet to come. It's going to be fully conquered. It's going to be destroyed into the lake of fire. These powers will cease and be gone forever. And so we believe that the story of Jesus is the story of a conquering king. He's the conquering king of sin, Satan, and death. The things that we cannot rescue ourselves from, He can and He does. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's the good news of King Jesus. And that we need to believe that story afresh. And that freedom, true freedom, 
comes from bowing by faith to the authority of Jesus, the conqueror, that he has and will fully and finally defeat these things. And that's what we do in communion. Communion is both backward looking and forward looking. You got the Passover going on, you got Exodus, you got that kind of deliverance over a power. You got Jesus doing it with his disciples, saying, He's the Lamb. That's where the forgiveness is. And then in Mark 14, and we're going to read it right now, and then we're going to read it again in just a second. I'm almost done. He tells us to look forward. 14, 22, oops, that's Matthew. Mark 14, 22 to 25. Jesus and the disciples, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And we just read about that and all of its violent glory, but also goodness and virtue of a conquering king getting rid of the evil powers forever. And so we can do that now by faith. We can take his body, his blood as a belief in what he has done for us in the past Forgiven your sin. What He will do for you in the future. Conquer death. Rise with Him. One day all those, th- those things gone. And so we can do it in an act of forward faith. And just kind of a kick the devil in the teeth thing. That we believe this. This is true. This is happening. This has happened and it will happen. So let's do that in faith right now. So let's come up and grab communion as as we sing.
song is very personal. This message is very personal because all of us face those things. And that Jesus loves you. And we celebrate that. But it's not just personal. It's like cosmic. It's like the whole story of the world. That those are, authorities are going to be gone. And so yes, we look at it as individuals. We receive it. And also we say, man, we got the whole picture. The whole story of the world is what we're celebrating right now and where it's going and where it's headed. Man, that's good news for us, for me, personally. That's good news for everybody, for the whole world. And so that's what we do when we take communion. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen.
wonderful day.